How's everyone this morning? Good. It's been a wonderful, wonderful week. I want to express my appreciation on behalf of myself and my wife, Lynn, for all of the kindness that's shown to us, for having been invited to the wonderful fellowship. Food's been great. Linda has done a marvelous job playing this piano this week. Everything has just been wonderful, and I've enjoyed it immensely. Like you, I'm a little weary. As we say, we get uh, weary in the work, but not weary of the work. Last night, as I got to bed, finally, it was late, and I finally got to sleep. Sometime in the middle of the night, I woke up and I was thinking about uh, when I was a little boy in southwest Georgia. We had cane mills, and uh, it was something like a part of a tree sticking out of a cylinder, and it was a mule at the end of it. And the mule would simply walk in circles these two cylinders would turn together and someone would stand there and feed cane into it and squeeze the juice out of it. And I thought about that man going round and around and I thought to myself, I'm like him, I have been around. <laughs> Not only in the sense of geographically, in circles, but in the sense of time. Uh, I remember the time when I thought that uh, perhaps the inspired scripture that gives us what I call the Elijah syndrome of 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. I thought perhaps that they had added uh, two zeros too many. I thought there were not 70. The Lord was pleased to save me at a fairly early age back in the late 60s. And uh, I remember when you couldn't find anybody, conferences or anything been pleased to make, make many friends. I met Brother Ward about 12 years ago, and I knew that he and John needed to meet, so I had them both at our conference, and this will be our 21st Bible conference this year, if any of you are free, from June 29th through July 2nd, and you're down in Tennessee, well, come and visit us, and John will be speaking, and Brother Ward and some other men. And uh, I had them both come to a meeting, and they met each other, and it's been a love affair ever since. In fact, it's kind of dangerous. Uh, uh, Brother Ward, uh, for all those years he had had his conference, I had handled his, his teaching. He said, why don't you preach a while and let John teach? So John's been teaching now. This will be your fourth year, won't it, at, uh, Oak, at Oak Ridge. It's been wonderful, wonderful. And I personally, although I know that uh, discussing and talking about things such as uh, eschatological views perhaps can be touchy. I think it's all been conducted in a very good spirit, an amiable spirit. And I said to a man the other day, I've seen politicians for years just curse at each other and accuse each other when it's over they shake hands and talk about my worthy opponent. If they can do that, surely if we believe in Grace, we ought to be able to do that. The most gracious people on earth ought to be people who say they believe in grace. Now, if any of you should want a copy of these notes, and I assure you today that like all of these men who have come, certainly I would be tempted to preach, but I'm not going to do that. By calling, I am a preacher and I'm not a lecturer. I do quite a bit of teaching, but I'm going to stick strictly to these notes today. Or we, won't, we won't get anywhere if I don't do that. So if you want any of them back there where the tapes are, put your name and address and zip code and just write tape, I mean lecture, or something to the side, and I'll be glad to mail you a copy of these. We're going to begin with the question, where shall we begin? And then we're going to a second division, a starting point, a few words about the science of hermeneutics, and then if time allows, something about a foundation for promise fulfillment theology and perhaps some kind of synopsis 
and uh, a critique. Back in the 1940s, there was a church in southern Mississippi, and they were looking for a pastor. And they had heard several men, and the first man that they heard when they sat down, they had a committee, sat down with this man, and they asked him of his knowledge of the Bible. They said, John, do you know the Bible? He said, know the Bible. Yes, sir, I know the Bible. Well, one of the deacons said, well, why don't you just uh, tell us the story of the Good Samaritan? Well, sir, he began. There was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. But he fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked him. <laughs> and as he went, he didn't have no money, but he met the queen of Sheba. And she gave him a thousand talents of gold and one hundred changes of raiment. Then he got into a chariot, and he drove furiously. While he was going, he passed under a big juniper tree. And don't you know, while he was going under that tree, his hair caught on the limb... <laughs> And he hung there many days and many nights. And the ravens brought him food to eat <laughs> and water to drink. And he ate 5,000 loaves of bread <laughs> and two fishes. One night while he was hanging there asleep, and his wife Delilah came along and cut off his hair, he fell down and dropped on stony ground. But he got up and went on. It began to rain, and it rained 40 days and 40 nights. So he hid himself in a cave. He lived on locust and wild honey. And then he went on until he met a servant and said, Come, take some supper at my house. But he made an excuse. He said, No, I won't go. I've married a wife, and I can't go. The servant went out to the highways and hedges and compelled him to come in. <laughs> After supper, he went on until he finally came down to Jericho. When he got there, he looked up and he saw that old queen Jezebel sitting way high up in the window. She was laughing at him. And he said, throw her down. And they threw her down. He said, throw her down again. They throw her down again. He said, throw her down again, and they threw her down 70 times 7. <laughs> and the fragments that remained thereof, they picked up 12 baskets full, <laughs> besides women and children. And they said, blessed are the peacemakers, P-I-E-C-E. Now, whose wife do you think she'll be there on Judgment Day? And you ask me if I know the Bible. <laughs> now, what was wrong with that man? He needed a good lesson in hermeneutics. Where shall we begin? From the Greek word hermeneutikos, hermeneutics is defined as the study of the methodological principles of interpretation, that is, the proper way to approach Scripture so as to arrive at an understanding of God's will as revealed therein. The Greeks worshipped many gods, and one of them was Hermes, a god who served as herald and messenger of the gods. And being the messenger of the gods, Hermes, of necessity, had not only the very important duty of delivering divine edicts, but of delivering them in such a way as to explicate or interpret the precise meaning and intent of the god who had sent the message. Thus the English word interpreter and the word hermeneutics, which is the study of the principles of interpretation, are taken from the name 
of this messenger of the gods, Hermes. We know him better as Mercury. You see this little florist company that has the fellow with the cap on and wings on his feet. We've all heard of the man whose wife gave him a little note just before he was to speak. Upon unfolding the paper, the very nervous gentleman found the word KISS written in capital letters. And after he had delivered his keynote address and taking his seat, he whispered in his wife's ear, thank you, sweetheart, for the kiss, even though it was only written on paper, it helped me a great deal to be assured of your love for me. And she looked rather startled, and she said, I'm so glad it helped you, honey, but you completely misinterpreted my message. K-I-S-S means keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> so the principles of interpretation of utmost importance. Where do we begin with our theology? There are only two possible starting points, man or the Word of God. Now, around the turn of the 19th century, the religious consciousness of man was substituted for the Word of God as the starting point of theology. Faith in Scripture as an authoritative revelation of God was discredited and human insight based on man's emotional or rational apprehension became the standard of religious thought. Religion gradually took the place of God as the object of theology. Man ceased to recognize the knowledge of God as something that was given in Scripture and began to pride himself on being a seeker after God. And soon it became popular to speak of man's, quote, discovering end of quote, God. And of course, every discovery was dignified with the word revelation. One does not have to look very far to see the devastating results of beginning our theology anthropologically, that is, with man. Every man becomes his own God. Thus, every man has his own hermeneutic. No one is wrong and no one is right because no one knows for sure because there is no authoritative standard. As Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, we begin the study of theology standing upon two great presuppositions. Namely, that God exists and that he has revealed himself in his divine word. Thus, we can turn to God's revelation in his word in order to learn at least three things. One, what he has revealed about himself. Secondly, what he has revealed about his relationship with his creatures in general. And thirdly, what he has willed for his peculiar people, namely they who are redeemed through the substitutionary death of the Son of God. Our basic presupposition that God has revealed himself in his divine word implies certain basic principles of the science of interpretation of Scripture commonly called hermeneutics. I'm going to speak to that question of hermeneutics in general, and then if we have time, in a more particular way. Concerning the science of hermeneutics, there is a four-fold overview. In general, our hermeneutical approach is fourfold. One, Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, as helpful as confessions and creeds might be they are not to be equated with the written word of God. The only infallible rule of the interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, it must be searched and known by other places in the Scripture to speak more plainly. So the Bible interprets the Bible. Secondly, lexicography. That is the meaning of words. The meaning of words is to be established by a study of their usage. And a study of the usage of the words of Scripture means, number one, the usage of the particular author whose work may be under investigation. 
Number two, the usage of previous scriptural writers. And number three, the usage of the words under investigation. Now, brethren, since the Holy Spirit has chosen to use known human languages to convey to us the mind and will of God, the usage of the words in those languages throws light on their meaning in the scriptures. Thirdly, context. By context is meant the background, the circumstances, the conditions, the framework, and the situation of the passage, all words under consideration. A study of the context involves not only the immediate context, but the entire book in which the words occur and the entire background of history. Fourthly, grammatico-historical interpretation. The importance of attempting to master, and I underscore attempting, to master the grammar of the languages of the Bible, as well as the historical setting in which the various parts of the Bible were given cannot be overemphasized. The study of grammar includes lexicography, which I've already mentioned, and the study of historical background includes all matters of context, immediate or remote. Now, to address the question of the need of interpretation, there are two extremes regarding the interpretation of Scripture. I'm not speaking, of course, in just sovereign grace camps, but generally speaking, especially in the West, two extremes regarding the interpretation of Scripture. One, that the Bible is written in such simple language that it needs no explanation. And secondly, that the contents of the Bible are above the grasp of untrained minds. Now, the former view is held by many who identify themselves as fundamentalists, and the latter by cults of the Roman Catholic Church. Those who subscribe to the former view, that is, that the Bible really needs no explanation, that it says what it means, that it means what it says, have made certain cliches famous. And one of the better known ones is, if the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Now, this sort of reasoning, of course, insists that the Bible must be believed and not explained. But there are two fundamental or basic problems with this attitude. The first is indicated by the little word if. If the Bible says it. If the Bible says it, that phrase implies that one must first know just exactly what the Bible says. But as long as there's an if, how can you believe it? Secondly, and this is very important, the problem is not whether one who is a Christian believes the Bible, believes what the Bible says. One who does not believe the Bible is not a liberal, he's an unbeliever, he's not a Christian. The question is not, therefore, whether one believes the Bible and what the Bible says, but the question is, what does the Bible actually say? I'm sure that all of you have heard John Riesinger's story, at least that's where I heard it, of the man who was talking to his friend, I think it was in a barber shop, and they were talking about various things, and the focal point of their discussion was the sovereign grace of God. And he was witnessing to his friend about God having chosen us in Christ and so on, and his friend just didn't believe that. But he said to his friend, he said, you believe the Bible, don't you? Oh, yes, I believe the Bible from cover to cover. Even believe the cover where it says Holy Bible. Revelation 1.1 to Genesis 1, 1 to Revelation 22, 21. I believe the Bible. He said, well, let me read you a passage of Scripture without comment. And he read him the first 14 verses of the first chapter of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You're familiar with that. And he quoted those first four, read those first 14 verses out of the Bible without comment. And then he looked at his friend and he said, now, you say you believe the Bible. He said, do you believe that? And his friend looked at him and he said, 
not the way you read it. <laughs> you see, it's not just what the Bible says that is the critical matter. Anyone can read the Bible in order to find out what it says. The question is, what does the Bible mean when it says what it says? The faith of God's people is not a blind leap in the dark. There are three indispensable requirements for faith. These are very fundamental. First, the Word itself. Whether it's read or whether it's heard. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Secondly, understanding the Word. And thirdly, appropriating the Word. Now, we cannot believe what we've not heard. And hearing will do us no good if we don't understand. And certainly we cannot utilize or appropriate that which we do not know about or understand. And I wish to emphasize that these three pillars of faith must stand or fall together. All are essential. If, for example, one hears or one reads the Word but does not understand the Word, faith cannot exist. If one hears and seems to understand but does not appropriate or allocate what has been heard and understood, faith cannot exist. Now, I don't understand how one of these essentials, or more, uh, one or more, could be exercised or experienced without the others, but I assure you that according to Scripture, that is possible. The parable of the sower, for example, speaks of four kinds of hearers. One heard the word, but he did not understand it. One heard the word and in some measure received it, but he did not continue in it. The third hearer received the word, but he brought forth no fruit unto perfection because of the world and riches. And the fourth hearer only had a biblical faith. Having heard the word, he not only received it, he appropriated it to the glory of God and he brought forth much fruit. The scriptures are compared, among other things, to buried treasure. And like buried treasure, much of the time they do not easily yield up their valuables. Certain portions of Scripture are difficult, more difficult than others to understand. The great apostle Peter, for example, tells us, quote, that our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you epistles in which are some things hard to be understood. Once they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Now this is a favorite verse of the Roman Catholic Church, which uses it to prove that the common man has no business whatsoever trying to study and understand the scripture. But is this in fact what Peter is telling us? I don't think so. If we look at the text more closely, we'll find first of all Peter says only some things not all things or even many things that Paul has written are under consideration. Secondly, Peter says that some things Paul has written are hard to understand, not impossible to understand. Thirdly, he denotes that these writings of Paul are inspired, for he compares them with what he calls the other scriptures. And if then these epistles of Paul are inspired, the Holy Spirit has caused them to be written for our admonition, our exhortation, correction, and rebuke. But if, 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 if we can't understand it, if it's impossible to understand, how could that be true? How could we experience any rebuke or exhortation or correction or so on if we can't understand what Paul is saying? And fourthly, it appears that Peter and others did understand Paul because they taught others. And lastly, Peter says, really, it is only the unenlightened. This is the meaning of the word translated ignorant. Not the illiterate he has in mind here, but the unspiritual, the ones not established in Christ, thus not having his mind, not having the mind of the Spirit. It, it is these, it is they who twist what Paul says. I've understood this verse by subjecting it to certain hermeneutical principles. And if I didn't know some of these rules, perhaps I could not understand what Peter is really saying. So we see that the Bible needs no, that the Bible, that the Bible needs no explanation is false. And equally false is the idea that the Bible can only be understood by trained minds. So I'd like to suggest several 
practical guidelines in answering this question, why interpret the scriptures? How many of you have ever seen or read Arthur Pink's little book on the interpretation of scriptures? Some of you have read that. It's a very helpful little book, and I recommend it to you. And he lists several prerequisites or central qualifications for understanding and interpreting the scriptures, and I'd like to touch on a few of them. Interpretation is needed, for example, to explain seeming contradictions. For example, the scripture says God tempted Abraham, and the scripture says God tempts no man. And here, we believe the writer is discussing, if we, we're going to look at this verse and see how we can reconcile them, we have to understand the idea of primary and secondary meanings of words as well as the word itself, what it literally means. We need interpretation in the second place to prevent being misled by the mere sounds of words. How much war has been fought over this is my body? Is Jesus corporally, that is literally, in the bread and the wine of communion? What about the question of universalism? That is, that the Lord by his death atoned for the sins of all men without exception. For after all, the Bible does say in Hebrews 2, 9, that he, Jesus, should taste death for every man. Another question, is it possible to live above sin? If so, the doctrine of perfectionism must be taught. But doesn't the Bible say that Noah was a just and perfect man? Doesn't the Bible say that Job was perfect and upright? On the other hand, if we are to understand that these men were born totally depraved, but overcame their natural inclination toward evil, perhaps we need to re-examine the idea of a second blessing, a post-salvation experience, which produces entire sanctification. You remember the cliche, you can prove anything by the Bible? Years ago I heard a man say, well, you can prove anything by the Bible. And he said, you know, the Bible says Judas went out and hanged himself. And a few verses later it says, go thou and do likewise. Well, in his little book, in this section, Pink shows us that the sense of words is important. That is, the right word can be used, but it can be understood in the wrong way. In other words, we have to remember, even in any language, English or any language, there, that every word has a denotative as well as a connotative meaning. The denotative meaning of a word is the established and accepted definition of that word, the etymological meaning. But the connotative meaning of that word refers to the usage of the word, how it's used. A word may mean one thing at one time and another thing at another time, depending on how it is used. Interpretation is needed for the insertion of a word of explanation. We read in Romans 9, 19, the question of Paul, who hath resisted his will? Now, is it God's will for men to sin against him? Is God the author of sin? I suggest that God has revealed unto men that they are not to sin. For it says in 1 John, little children, I write unto you that you sin not. John says, he that commits sin is of the devil. I suggest that God had said, do not sin, but yet that when men do sin, the eternal purpose and will of God is not altered. Rather, the Lord is able to carry out his purpose in spite of the disobedience and the rebellion of men. The disobedience of Israel, for example, necessitated the Messiah, and yet the Messiah was foreordained from the foundation of the world. The betrayal by Judas was of the devil, Luke 23, verse 2. And yet Judas did it, and his doing it made certain the death of Christ, which provided salvation for the people of God, which was what God had purposed, purposely sent his Son into the world to do. I like Psalm 76, 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. That is, the sovereign God of the Bible has so ordered and arranged things that angry and deceitful men and women will nevertheless bring glory to his name. 
Where the wrath of man will serve the purpose of God, God uses it. But where the wrath of man will not serve the purpose of God, it is restrained. And thus, when we are confronted with such a passage as Romans 9, 19, we may have to go sometimes, maybe not with that passage, but with others, and hide, as many of us do, in Deuteronomy 29, 29. It speaks of the secret things of the Lord and those things that are revealed. Men may resist that which God has revealed to be his will in his word, but they cannot overthrow the secret things of the Lord. Another such passage, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Well, I ask you, does not God see evil and iniquity? Of course he does. But he cannot look upon evil and iniquity favorably. Another such statement, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. Are we to understand by this passage that there has been no change whatsoever in our Lord? Does this passage say what it means? Well, of course it says what it means, but what does it mean? Does it mean that our Lord still grows weary and hungers as he did in the days of his sojourn on earth? Does it mean that he is yet in the form of a servant, that he's still subject to death, still the man of sorrows? I think this passage intends to inform us that there has been no essential change in his divine person, although there has been a change in his human nature. I have heard well-informed men speak of God becoming a baby. That is incorrect language. God did not become a baby. What happened at the incarnation is what theologians refer to as the hypostatical union. If you go to the doctor and you're sick and he says you need a shot, he takes a hypodermic needle. Hypo means under and dermis refers to your skin and he takes the needle and he places it under your skin and he puts whatever medicine in you to help you get better. Well, the hypostatic union refers to the wonderful wisdom of God in taking a nature under or unto himself. God, in his essential nature, did not change, but he took unto himself a human nature. So we see that interpretation is needed in order to understand or explain by inserted or explanatory words just what a passage means. What about essential qualifications for interpreting Scripture? Now, brethren, I don't mind telling you and sisters that when I prepared this, I intended to be very basic. I'll get into some other things later if we have time. If we don't, you can get my notes. I don't think we ought to assume when we teach that everybody present understands everything we're saying. I think we ought to be very basic and fundamental. Anybody can take something that's simple and make it complicated. And I think it's a sign of intelligence and wisdom to take things that we consider profound and try to break them down. So I'm being very basic here. Here are some essential qualifications for interpreting the Scripture. First of all, I believe that the interpreter of Scripture must be regenerate, must be a believer. You cannot understand the Word of God if you are not regenerate. Paul says, the natural man receiveth not the things that are of the Spirit of God, they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. He does not have the ability, they have to be spiritually discerned, and he doesn't have a spiritual mind. The Scripture tells us that believers possess the mind of Christ. A spiritual book calls for a spiritual mind. A few years ago, I spoke on the subject of our logical faith. I got a lot of response. I, we've had a TV ministry in Nashville for 13 years. And oftentimes I bring certain messages to get people's interest and so I can get to what I really have to say. Once I got on TV and I said, I, I have seen, it has been revealed to me exactly when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. And I just went on and on and on about that. And then I listed se several basic things like he's going to return when it pleases him to do so. And by that time I had them, you see. And they wrote me and I had lots of letters, all positive. And I'll tell you this, the Bible, we're not saying that the Bible is an illogical book. 
But you cannot approach the Bible and understand the Bible on the basic of logic. You must approach the Bible with a spiritual mind through faith. So it's a spiritual book, and a spiritual book calls for a spiritual mind. Secondly, special illumination is needed to interpret the Bible, even after you are regenerated. Why, you say? Well, because of our ill will, because of our ignorance, because of our prejudices and our pride, because of satanic opposition, because of remaining sin, we need special illumination when we approach the Scripture. And that brings us to this third essential, a praying heart. A praying heart. I don't yet understand the whole reason behind prayer. I don't understand that. I think there's so many people who think when they pray that they're going to change God's mind. And I have known what I call the group uh, mentality, the gang mentality. If we get enough people together praying and gang up on God, maybe we can get him to move. But the scripture says the fervent, effectual prayer. And that word comes from a word that means boiling over, effectual prayer. It's like Brother Ward said, it's in you, it's burning in you availeth much, one single individual. But I do know we need a praying heart, and I think prayer certainly does not change God, but through it he changes us. It brings us in subjection to his will. And I know this, brethren, whatever you may think about prayer, only the inspirer of the word, which is the Lord, is competent to interpret the word. And I remind you of Proverbs 1 and 2 where the writer admonishes the individual who wishes to know the will of the Lord with these words, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom, apply thy heart to understanding, yea, if thou criest after knowledge, lifteth up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and search for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Did you hear all those words? Receive, hide, incline your ear, apply your heart, cry after knowledge, lift up your voice for understanding, seek her as hidden treasure, search for her as hid treasure. Then, praying hard is vital. A humble mind. I believe that heavenly mysteries are hid from the wise and prudent. I believe the Bible says if we lack wisdom, and that doesn't just mean about decisions out here, but wisdom about God's Word, it says ask of God. It's all right to read books. Most all of us here, bibliophiles, you know, we're just obsessed with books. And I have just more than I can store. But we must learn to ask God for wisdom. Next, there must be a holy design. This is important, especially for us preachers. Why do I want to know the Scriptures? Intellectualism, prove someone else wrong, to show what I know, or do I want to grow in grace? Do I have a desire to be conformed to Christ's image, to know God's will? I'll tell you this, it is more important for me to have a relationship with my Lord than it is for me to look into the Word and find something to say to my people. My first calling is to worship and serve the Lord as an individual believer, as a sinner saved by grace. And if we spent more time talking to the Lord, we might have more to say to our people. I think prayer is probably more important than preaching. If we don't spend time in prayer, if we don't teach our people to pray, the word of God that you preach, though it may be true, it may dot every I and cross every T, will not have the effect of rending the heart of men and women and bringing them to repentance and to faith in Christ. Lastly, I believe that an impartial spirit is an essential requirement. We know that prejudice inhibits judgment. We know that preconceived notions influence understanding. I think thirst for truth is essential. And this means then, brethren, that we must dispense with tradition 
and denominational sacred cows when we go to the Word of God. Now, I don't know whether I should close at this time. You raise your hand when you want to stop and take a break back there. But I want to suggest now to you three principles that are crucial in developing a biblical hermeneutic. First of all, there is the principle of precise definition. One of the things that makes a fruitful discussion so difficult is the problem of the definition of terms. Various teachers will use various terms in various ways. What does covenant mean to you? I suppose that if we assembled a group of men and women for discussion, we would have very little difference among them regarding the fact of a biblical covenant or covenants. The fact that God deals and has dealt with his people through covenants is understood. After all, the Bible is divided into the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But it is not the fact of covenants that is the question. It is the nature of the covenants. Take, the, for example, the monosyllable God. What does that word mean to you? Now, if we assembled a group made up of various religions, Muslims, Christians, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, etc., and we spoke to them about God, each person would define God in accordance to his religion and religious understanding. If God were defined to be the supreme one, I suppose that there would be a pretty good discussion with reasonable harmony. But if God were defined in more ultimate terms, if particulars about the nature of God were introduced, there would be immediate division. Each person, of course, would know what the other meant because of the precise definition of terms. Now, considering the fact that Christians within Calvinistic churches understand God to be a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, it is remarkable in one sense that they cannot understand one another. I think sometimes the problem is the reverse. I think we understand each other all too well and simply disagree. At any rate, I want you to know that there can be no movement toward and communication of a biblical hermeneutic unless and until the principle of precise definition is employed. I cannot understand what you mean if you don't understand what you mean. You cannot understand what I mean if I don't know what I mean. And I think Peter had something of this in mind when he said, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you of a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Second, the principle of biblical terminology. Not only precise definitions, but biblical terminology. I believe that the principle of precise definition of terms leads quite naturally to, the, to this principle of biblical terminology. Now, looking back on my previous illustration of the definition of the word God, how shall we go about defining that word? Now, you'll notice that I'm referring only to the word God, not to God himself, because God cannot be unequivocally or absolutely defined. To say that God himself is infinite, absolute, and unique is to render impossible any sort of confining definition of his person. I get the Jerusalem Post and other Jewish publications mailed directly to my home, and I notice often when they mention someone has died or so on, many Jews refuse even to write the letter O between the letter G and D. They have a G space D. Because to do so in their minds is to perhaps be guilty of sin because of trying to precisely identify the supreme one with a monosyllabic word. And to insist that God became a man to that sort of person would be blasphemous, wouldn't it? But how shall I speak of God? There's only one way. I must look into the written word of God and see how God has revealed himself. When I hear a man preach and I hear him say, Jesus Christ, I perk up because I want to hear who his Jesus is. And often I go away sadly disappointed because I have to say that is not the Jesus that I know. 
Now, whatever attributes God has ascribed to himself is how I must understand him. And my source of information must be the Bible, not personal ideas and opinions and not creeds or confessions of church councils. Thirdly and lastly, and this is understood by us here, the principle of Christocentric theology. That is, our theology must be Christ-centered. I often tell our people where I've been pastoring now for nearly 24 years, I tell our people, I hold the Bible up, and I say, this is a hymn book. H-I-M. It reveals him. And when the Lord Jesus himself opened the scripture, he took himself for a text and theme, preached on himself. To those men on the way back to Emmaus, he opened unto them the scriptures and he showed them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. How many of you have picked up the little green uh, paper back there by Dr. J. Uh, Gilliland? Any of you picked that up? I advise you to get that. It's good. This promise fulfillment theology, by which I mean much of what you mean when you say covenant theology, he quotes Jonathan Edwards at the beginning of that, and he says, quote, Jonathan Edwards says, quote, there is perhaps no part of divinity attended with so much intricacy, and wherein orthodox divines do so much differ as the stating of the precise agreement and difference between the two dispensations of Moses and of Christ. And about this statement, Dr. Gilliland, who is a medical doctor, but quite a student of theology, has written this. This statement is no less true today than when it was written in the early 18th century. Many of the doctrinal controversies that exist within Christendom and particularly within Calvinistic churches have arisen because of differing views of this relationship. The nature of the church, the meaning of baptism, and the relationship of law and grace being familiar examples. The answer lies then not so much in an analysis of the particulars, for example, baptism, but in the presuppositions regarding the nature of the relationship between the Old and New Covenant. These presuppositions are most fundamentally related to one's principles of interpretation of biblical hermeneutics, end of quote. And I believe the good doctor has put his finger upon the heart of the matter. He said the answer lies then not so much in an analysis of the particulars, but in the presuppositions regarding the nature of the relationship between the Old and New Covenant. In other words, what one presupposes in his or her approach to the Scripture will color what one sees in the Scripture and thus radically affect one's interpretation of the Scripture. Now, Dr. Zaspel correctly pointed out the other day in his presentation of his eschatological view the vast importance, the great importance of exegesis. And I think a lot of, I think that's true. I think that's very true. It reminds me of when I talk to people and they, they talk about losing weight. And I talk to one person and they say, I'm going to change my diet. And I talk to another person, they don't say anything about changing their diet. They just say, I'm going to exercise. You cannot lose weight unless you combine those two. You have to exercise and eat right. Therefore, <laughs> therefore, I think you have to have some exegesis and you have to combine your presuppositions. Let me make an illustration and we'll go for a break. I believe that every person is born with a set of spiritual glasses. And for the sake of emphasis, let's suppose that these glasses are colored or shaded with various hues. Now, if your glasses are shaded red, everything you see will appear to be red. If mine are blue, everything that I see will appear blue. And if I describe the sky to you, mention the beautiful shades of blue that permeate the heavens, you're going to differ with me because you see it differently. You will argue that the heavens are red. They're not blue. Now, perhaps everyone sees them differently. 
Some is green, yellow, some red, some blue. Everyone can only see what he or she sees because of the color of the glasses each is wearing. If you were born and raised, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church, and one should speak to you about what they considered the ludicrous teaching of the infallibility of the Pope, when he gives official dogma to the Roman Church, you would be offended. While you're not able to see that the Pope is not infallible at any time, at any place, on any occasion, because you have a certain pair of glasses on through which you view the Bible and salvation. These glasses are your presuppositions. And they determine exactly what you believe about spiritual matters. And as long as your presuppositions don't change, you cannot and will not see anything differently. You remember the Lord Jesus when he was talking to the Pharisees once? He asked them, why do you not understand my speech? He did not mean, don't you have appendages on either side of your head called ears? Aren't they working? No. He said, you cannot understand my speech because you cannot hear my words. Now, should you get a new pair of glasses, you're going to see things in a totally different light. But this analogy can get us into more trouble because we're born with a pair of glasses, but we believe that in the matter of going to the great physician, we're given a new pair. And every person who's come to Christ can in some measure say, I once was blind, but now I see. But if you were reared, for example, in a pedo-baptist church, one which practices infant baptism, you're going to see things differently than one brought up in a baptistic church, one which allows for the, the baptism of believers only. So I believe very strongly that our starting point must be with our suppositions. When we come back, I'm going to introduce you to several different classes of hermeneutics that I think you will find interesting, and I think you'll be able to relate to that. Isn't it time for us to take a break, or is it? Okay, so we'll dismiss you now for whenever you hear the piano. <laughs>